Welcome to Follow the Money Ball, a podcast at the intersection of sports and money. Here's your host, David Sloan. I'm David Sloan, and I have opinions. I also have 44 years of experience as an agent for MLB players that back those opinions up. My guest is Nona Lee. Nona is the founder and CEO of Truth DEI Consulting, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. He is also the former executive vice president and chief legal officer of the Arizona Diamondbacks and former senior vice president and general counsel of the Phoenix Suns. Welcome to Follow the Money Ball, Nona. Uh, thank you, David. I appreciate you having me on. I just want to make um, one clarification is that I, okay. I wasn't SVP and um, general counsel for the Phoenix Suns. I was associate general counsel and oh. uh, VP for the Phoenix Suns. So I don't okay. want to take credit for something that I didn't do. So just wanted to clarify. I understand. So you grew up in Los Angeles. Which high school did you go to in L.A.? I went to St. Mary's Academy, which is a private all-girls Catholic high school um, in Inglewood, uh, you know, not too far from the Forum, for those of you familiar with that. The Fabulous Forum. The Fabulous Forum. That was yes. that was where I grew up. That was uh, sort of my neighborhood. I grew up just a couple of miles east of there. And was it fabulous? It was fabulous. You know, um, I loved growing up in L.A. I loved going to uh, Lakers games at the farm with my dad. He used to take me all the time. Um, and, yeah, just growing up in L.A. was was amazing, um, you know, close to the beach. It wasn't as crowded as, as it is now and as it eventually yeah. became, which is part of the reason I left. But um, it will always hold a, a very uh, a, a very special place in my heart. I still think of it as home in some ways. I'm sure. I'm sure. And I no doubt it has changed a lot. Um, uh, certainly growing up in Los Angeles uh, gave you a tremendous advantage in terms of you, no doubt, in your athletic career, faced some outstanding competition. And I have to imagine that prepared you well for um, your time as a basketball player at Pepperdine. It did. I mean, you know, I, I started with athletics very early in my life, including starting as an AAU swimmer and water polo player um, and uh, learned a lot about, um, you know, being an athlete on an individual basis and as part of a team and what all of that meant and all of the things that went along with that, you know, back in that time in L.A. in terms of being, um, you know, the first uh, black person on my team and and what came along with that or who didn't stay for that because of that. Um, and uh, then, you know, it was great competition playing basketball at, uh, you know, growing up and then at St. Mary's where I went to high school and then on through college at Pepperdine. It was, it was really a wonderful experience and it really helped set the tone for who I would later become and how I would uh, move through my life. Were you playing in the front court or the back court? Oh, always the the, the backcourt. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, I was I was a two always. I was the shooter, um, oh, okay. and I love playing defense. Defense was my game. So you weren't in there throwing elbows. Uh, if I had to be, I would. <laughs> yeah, you know, I will say that. I remember one game in college where um, our our center was out or on the bench or something, and my my uh, coach had me guarding the center on the other team um, because I was. I was good at defense and um, I like to get in there and mix it up, but you know, I was much more comfortable offensively outside, you know, hitting the outside shots or, or finding my open teammates. 
I understand. I don't know. You mentioned the Lakers. I don't know if you recall a player by the name of Paul Stovall, who was a former number one draft choice uh, for the Lakers who played at Arizona state. And Paul was six foot four and used to jump center uh, at the beginning of the games and half times. Um, I remember the guy's name. Uh, Brigham Young had a guy, big seven foot guy, and Stovall jumped center against him at the beginning of the game and and out jumped him, got the tip. So uh, sometimes those those uh, smaller people will definitely surprise you. So it's you always mentioned- been, I just want to say it's always been my philosophy that it's not about the heart. I mean the height. It's about the heart, right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So I appreciate that. Uh, no problem. No problem. So so tell me this. Um, Taking a, a bit of a turn, but staying within the the concept of your sports career as a player, um, and and with all the experience you've had in the corporate world as well, uh, I'm certain that you had to recruit slash interview hire you know people to come work with you. And now in your consulting firm, I'm certain you deal with this all the time. Do you find that former athletes make better, for lack of a better term, candidates for job openings than people were not because they know what it's like to sacrifice to achieve a goal. They know what it's like to be a team member, et cetera, et cetera. Would you agree with that idea or or is is it just not fanciful? No, I, I agree with it as a general concept, but I don't think it's necessarily absolute. And what I mean by that is, you know, um, there are other people who build those same intangible skills in other ways. We know, perhaps they were a musician um, or something like that, where they had to learn discipline and teamwork and getting up and practicing early in the hours. But as a general rule, yes, I do believe that to be the case because of all of the intangibles that we get um, from being athletes, you know, from from teamwork, discipline, determination, um, learning to uh learning to to lose, but, you know, learning to win gracefully as well. But all of those things translate directly into business and, um, you know, also the competitive desire and the desire to get in there and work hard and not be afraid of working hard in, in order to, you know, accomplish your goal. Well, I can tell you the, the lesson that I learned most intently uh, from my athletic career was I didn't like being yelled at. And finally, it, it it wasn't until my senior year in high school, and I started playing sports when I was, you know, on teams in organized leagues when I was nine years old. Now they've got leagues at, you know, six and seven. But at any rate, back then in the Stone Ages, you, you weren't playing in um, organized leagues until you were nine years old. So from nine till 17, it just drove me nuts. And And finally, at 17, I had a football coach who pulled me aside grabbed me by the face mask and said, you don't like being yelled at, do you? And I said, no. I said, I don't like it at all. And he said, well, understand this. When I stop yelling at you, that means I've given up. And I took that to heart because you really need to care about somebody to put that effort into it, to try and and to try and try and try to to correct them, to teach them, to educate them on what it is you want them to do, and, and particularly when you're the more experienced individual, mm-hmm. and that's something that uh, that carried over into my business career because 
it taught me to listen. Mm-hmm. It taught yeah. me to listen. I think I think that's a great point. I mean, I had many coaches who were who were yellers similarly, um, and I didn't like it. Uh, did it serve its purpose? Absolutely. But you know, when I think about this um, and translate it into the workplace as well, you know, it also taps into or you know takes us to that concept that um, if we want people to uh, to excel and to thrive, we need to know what it is they need in order to be their best and do their best. And that's not being yelled at for everybody. Right. Certainly. <laughs> Certainly. But, but yeah, I, you know, I hear you. It, it, it uh, I didn't like it either, but it, the goal was accomplished. Well, and I think that's one thing that separates the good coaches from the great coaches. Mm-hmm. Good coaches can, can motivate you by yelling and, 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 you know, uh, telling you that you you suck, whereas a great coach knows the guys who can be motivated by getting kicked in the ass and knows the guys that can be motivated better by patting them on the back. Exactly. The great coaches and the great leaders. Mm-hmm. Yes, without a doubt, without a doubt. So um, you mentioned something else that piqued my interest, and, and um, I, I want to at least touch on it. Um, you said that there were several teams that you played on where you were the first black player that had played on that team. Can you speak to that experience and, and what was that like? Were you accepted? Were you harassed, for lack of a better term? Were you called names? Well, and, and fortunately, it was really only one, and it was a start of my competitive um, athletic career. And that was when I tried out for the AAU swim team when I was 12 years old and I tried out and I made it and I was so excited. You know, the place was just full of kids and it was buzzing and I was really excited to get started. And, um, my dad took me back the next day and, um, there were like half as many kids there. And I sort of asked what was going on and was told that, by the coach that, you know, or by my dad who told the coach had told that about half the kids had quit because their parents didn't want them swimming in the pool with me. In and, LA? In LA. In LA. And and this was in the in the early to mid seventies, early seventies. Um and so people are always surprised by that. But um yeah, uh in LA in the seventies, and so people make assumptions that um uh, racism and and hatred don't exist in places like that that are supposedly protect uh you know really um you know more um forward thinking but you know those things exist everywhere and so for me that happened to me when I tried out for the swim team and um I was hurt I was really hurt and I you know told my dad well if they don't want me here I don't want to come back and he said do you want to swim I'm like yeah I do and he said, well, you earn the right to be here. So if you want to be here, then we're going to be here. And so I stuck it out. And, um, you know, the kids that stayed uh, were, were clearly more open to it. And, yeah, eventually I was accepted. I was another teammate and, um, you know, was invited to spend the night at people's houses. But it was a tough lesson to learn early on. Not my first lesson like that, but first one in sports. And um, fortunately, it didn't repeat itself as I as I went through my um, my basketball career. Yeah, well, uh, well, first of all, yeah, I'm shocked. 
And the reason that I'm shocked is not that I don't think racism exists everywhere, mm -hmm. because I know it exists everywhere. My best friend in the world is black. Mm -hmm. And um, I've, I've not the first black person that I've ever been friends with. But mm -hmm. I would have thought in Los Angeles, the racism would have been a little bit more subtle, for lack of a better term, as opposed to down here, where I grew up in Florida, the junior high that I, my elementary school, 100% segregated. My junior high, 100% segregated until my ninth grade year, my last year there. And what was was particularly ironic about that was um, my junior high was on one side of the street and the other side of the street was the black section of town. And there was not a single black student in my school until I was in ninth grade. And then there was, I think, two. And then there were, you know, half a dozen in eighth grade and several more in seventh grade because that was when they first started integrating down here in the South. So it was blatant here. Yeah. It was absolutely blatant. Mm -hmm. um, I, I can remember uh, traveling on the Florida Turnpike, which I don't know how much traveling you've done around the state of Florida, but it's one of the main arteries throughout the state. Now, unfortunately, named the Ronald Reagan Turnpike, but that's a story for another day. And I can remember being there with my father and seeing that there was a white bathroom and a colored bathroom. Mm -hmm. And I asked him what that was about, and he had to explain that to me. And I was seven, eight years old at the time. So here it was in your face. Yeah. I figured L.A., it would not quite so much be in your face. So so that's why my jaw dropped when you yeah. said that <laughs> happened. It, I, I mean, I, I understand. And that's why it was so shocking to me, because I think for the most part, it was very subtle in Los Angeles. Um, but and this was in a way subtle for them. Right. They just didn't show up and took their kids out of the program because I was there. Um, but yeah, you know, I grew up spending my summers in Nancy's, Mississippi, and I know that in your face kind of oh gosh, I guess racism <laughs> and um, you know, so it just shows up in different ways and different forms. And you know, when I look back on it, uh, you know, swimming wasn't a sport where there were just a lot of you know there wasn't a lot of diversity. No, and still so, isn't. And so people didn't know how to hadn't had to deal with it, um, didn't want to deal with it, didn't know you know didn't want to take responsibility for that and came with their, their own um, uh, stereotypes, et cetera, and their own fear and their own hate. But I didn't experience that in basketball because basketball, you know, was a sport that was, um, you know, very diverse, very integrated. And so to some extent, I think it really depends on, and we see that today, right. And in, in major league sports, even, you know, baseball versus yeah. NBA, right. hundred um, percent. Yeah. That, you know, some sports are just not uh, as as diverse and as open to diversity. And it takes time to get there. And, yeah. you know, fortunately, we're seeing uh, a lot of movement in those areas these days and some effort or intention, at least, to to do that. Uh, unfortunately, they're 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 lagging way behind in terms of of management positions and, and baseball in my opinion, has gone backwards. I mean, yeah. um, when I was a kid, so many of my favorite players were black players. Mm -hmm. Now there's just a handful in the big leagues. Let yeah. me ask you another question about your athletic career. 
Um, you mentioned that you didn't experience the same type of, of bigotry um, uh, as you went on and, and played basketball. Would you, would you posit that perhaps a part of that may have been because you were one of the better players as well? Because obviously, you know, doing well enough to have gotten a scholarship to a D1 school like Pepperdine, you had to have been a damn good player. Um, and oftentimes damn good players uh, are, are, are able to live by a different set of rules. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, maybe. Uh, here, here, here's why I'm not um, completely on board with that. I walked on at Pepperdine. I didn't go okay. in there with the scholarship. I, I, okay. I wanted to play. You wanna, okay. And I walked on and I earned my scholarship and I earned my, my spot on the team um, and kept it uh, for for those four years. So, yes, I was a very good player, but I was also a very good swimmer. I became a very uh-huh. good swimmer because I stuck uh-huh. it out and had the opportunity right. and I was a junior right. Olympic medalist. I mean, and so, oh, wow. I, you know, to answer your question, did my abilities change perceptions and disarm people and, you know, perhaps make them think about the stereotypes they had about me when I got there? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So did I see change over time as people saw um, in the swim wor- swimming world, how good I was? Yeah. But it's, it's, um, there was that in basketball too, but I think really with basketball, it's just been more, it's been integrated for longer. And, yes. um, you know, so I, I didn't even think about it with basketball. It was a, we were all there to do the same thing. We were a diverse team. We all just accepted each other because we all brought something to the table that that you know we that mattered, something that benefited the team, and that's that's what was important. And we became family, and that mm-hmm. was what mattered. Um, eventually, that happened, as I said, to some extent in swimming, but it's just a very different dynamic because swimming was not really integrated. It was not diverse at that time, much like you're talking about, you know, major league baseball having gone backward. Well, swimming hadn't gone forward yet. Um, (laughs) You know, and I was in some ways at the, at the front end of that um, as a black person. And you're seeing more um, black swimmers just excelling now. And I'm I'm happy for that because it's, it's really, um, There'd probably be more if there were more access and, um, it, you know, everybody can swim if they want to, you know, it's not about what race no. you are or anything else, but there's just this sometimes in sports sense of, um, elitism. And I think sometimes people don't even realize it's happening because they don't see who's not there. Right. True. And they can't, and a lot of people can't see past the end of their own nose. Yeah, it's all of it's all about them. Tell me something. What is it that made you choose Pepperdine of all the schools in that area? Assuming that that one of your factors was proximity, having grown up in Los Angeles. What was it that made you choose Pepperdine? Um, The other factor really was my um, high school teammate had been uh, recruited by them out of school. And uh, I loved playing with her and wanted to continue mm-hmm. to play with her. Uh, she's an amazing player. We're still friends today, um, Desiree Marcelin. And I love. she was a fantastic player. We clicked together. She was a one. I was a two. And she was up there, and she was telling me about it. So I thought, well, this is perfect. You know, I had an opportunity, and sometimes I, I do second-guess this, to to go play for Yale on a scholarship. Um, 
and I decided to stay there and, you know, the proximity and uh, also to play with someone who I really enjoyed playing with and, and keep that uh, sports relationship going and building on it and seeing where we could go with it. Well, obviously it worked. Obviously it worked. So, so you played ball at Pepperdine and um, you got your BA in broadcasting. I did. I thought I was going to be Robin Roberts before Robin Roberts was Robin <laughs> before uh-huh. she was a sportscaster. I mean, that was my dream. Um, and it just didn't, I ended up on the business side of the entertainment industry and just couldn't break through on the talent side. So, um, you know, I, I, I worked in the, on the business side for a while, uh, about eight years before dipping my toe into the law. So you worked in, when you say business side, business and sports? No, business in on the broadcast side. Um, on the broadcast on, side. On the entertainment side, we should say. I, I started out um, working for a, a national television advertising sales firm, Blair Television, back in the day. And then I went to Kiss FM AM radio, you know, Rick D's in the morning. Oh, really? And, yeah, I worked as a personnel director and credit manager. And, you know, at that point in time, just decided that this isn't really what I want to do. And I'd been intrigued with the law. I grew up working in law firms. My mother was a legal secretary, but I didn't like lawyers. So so well, it was really a, a bit of a conundrum for me. And I understand. But uh, I decided to become a paralegal and dip my toe in the water. And I fell in love with, the, with, with law and then went to law school. Yeah. Interesting. My wife got her degree in broadcasting as well. That's why I wanted to ask you about it. But unlike yourself, she stayed in it and has been on the air and uh, behind the mic as well as a producer. Um, I don't know if you recall the Mark and Brian show in Los Angeles. I do. She, I she, pro- she produced that show for five years. That's phenomenal. And she, she was on, um, she was a producer in New York, but one of the few people that I know who who actually did what their college degree said they are going to be doing. Most people that I know get a degree in something and they use that as a springboard to, to go on to, to something completely unrelated. So you worked in business and mm-hmm. you decided to, as you put it, dip your toe into law and then um, decided to go full on into law. Mm-hmm. Now, when you first uh, passed the bar, you were in private practice? I was. I was working for um, a, what had become a small firm be, be, six weeks before graduation. It was a major firm and it blew up. And um, the smaller version of it honored my my offer. Um, and so I came out as a litigator for a firm here in Phoenix. And were you doing more let's call it business type of things. Were you litigating? I was litigating. I was primarily, I was doing some um, commercial litigation, but Uh primarily um, personal injury and medical malpractice with an emphasis on wrongful death claims. But I did do some commercial litigation. I was involved in the tobacco litigation back in the day and and all of that. But um, no, not doing too much on the business side then. I understand. So how did you move from there into working in sports because tobacco litigation and all the rest of that stuff would not seem to be the the key to a future in uh sports business 
Yeah, you know, when I was in law school, I had no idea there was an opportunity, you know, to work as a lawyer in professional sports. It wasn't on my radar at all. Um, you know, and then what happened for me is the WNBA started. And all I could think about was how can I merge my my practice with my passion for sports? How can I get a job working in in, in uh, with the WNBA? And a woman who had been on the um, business side of the firm, she was a, a transactional attorney. She had been a year ahead of me and she'd left. And as it turned out at the time, she was the general counsel for the Suns. And so I called her and I said, hey, um, how, how do I do what you're doing? You know, how do I break into uh, the sports world as a legal practitioner? And she basically told me I was not qualified because I really needed to be a transi- transactional practitioner if I wanted to work in-house with a team because I'd already researched being an agent. And, you know, that wasn't really for me, I didn't think. Um, and so having heard that from her and having talked to the managing partner at the firm I was at about starting a sports law practice there, and he said, no, um, I did the only logical thing you can do. And that's, you know, interview with the firms in town that represented the teams and with the goal of starting over as a transactional attorney. And um, I got an offer from the outside counsel firm for the Diamondbacks. Um, so to, wait, you had, you were still in Los Angeles and you interviewed no, no. for, you I had came, moved to Phoenix. I came to Phoenix out of law school. I never went back. Oh, to okay. Um, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. I'm sorry. I wasn't clear. Yeah. I came to Phoenix out of law school. And so I was already here in Phoenix. So I represented what firms in town or I researched what firms in town represented the, uh, the pro teams. And um, I got uh, an offer from Gallagher and Kennedy, which was the outside counsel firm for the Diamondbacks. And I'd been very clear about what my objective was. And after about a week after I accepted their offer, they asked me to come down and talk to them. They told me that the son's general counsel, the woman who I'd spoken with was leaving uh, the son's leaving her position and asked if I wanted to interview for the position and they'd set up the interviews and so, um, wait know. a minute, wait, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. She said you had to be a transactional attorney for a while. First, how long had you been transactional? I hadn't started at the firm yet. This was, this was before I even started there. So oh. what they did was they said, great. Um, you know, they set up the interviews, they brought me into the firm and, and, and put me with two wonderful, uh, women uh, attorneys. One was a corporate attorney, the other a securities attorney. And I started learning transactional practice from them as I started to go through the interview process with the sons. And I believe I joined the firm in November of 99. And I uh, didn't get the job, the general counsel position, but um a few weeks later, they decided to create a number two position, associate general counsel, and they offered that to me. So I started with the Suns in on January eighteenth, two thousand. And so, um, you know, when I talk about it, I, I talk about it as the stars aligning in some way. Um, yeah. I was very intentional about what I wanted to do, and um, you know, it just worked out for me. So I learned That's on the wild. Learned that on the job. Wild. Yeah. I, I thought when you said the WNBA came along that you were thinking of putting your sneakers back on and getting back out there. Oh, I did. I did think about it because I was still able to do it when they first came, but I was trying to to figure out how I was going to do that and practice law at the same time. And, you know, I was an original season ticket holder with the Phoenix Mercury and uh, 
you know, I was watching play. I'm like, I could do this. I can get out there and play with them. But I never pulled the trigger. You know, I don't have many regrets in my life. But, you know, sometimes I wonder what would have happened if I if I tried. But um, still an avid fan, still love watching it. Um, going to games is fantastic. I, I keep it right here. It's like the quote from Jim Bowden. You spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball. And in the end, it turns out that it was the other way around all the time. Once yeah. you get in deep like that, it never leaves you. Exactly. It never leaves you. Exactly. So, yeah. But not many people practice law and a jumper at the same time. <laughs> that is true. I suppose it could be done. I just, you know, I did not, didn't try to figure that one out. But, um, you know, I like I think if anybody could do that, I think if anybody could do that, probably Steph Curry could. But that's another story. Well, seems that like true. that, Mac, seems like he can do anything. But, um Okay, so now you're with the Suns, and and you're working. Were you working in negotiating contracts? Um, yeah, you know. First, I'll say that at the time, the Suns and the Diamondbacks and the Mercury were jointly owned by Jerry Jerry Colangelo and his ownership group, and so I was working for all three franchises, and um, we also had a few facilities as well. And so, yes, I was uh, drafting and negotiating contracts. I was also utilizing my litigation skills, which always came in handy um, in, internally uh, as well. But, the, yeah, drafting, negotiating contracts, you know, you start small and you work your way up. And so I had a yeah. wonderful, wonderful teacher in Tom O'Malley, who was the general uh, counsel of the, the Suns at the time. Well, ironically, uh, Jerry Colangelo was the first sports executive that I ever spoke to in my career as an agent. My very first client was a man by the name of James Brown, who played basketball at Arizona State. And James was a buddy of mine. Um, he was the roommate of uh, another close friend of mine, Bump Wills, who played baseball on the baseball team at ASU. And I had two roommates at played on the baseball team. I had gone out for the baseball team at Arizona State, not because I thought I had a prayer of making it. For me, it was like a fantasy camp that I didn't have to pay for. I will give myself the following credit. I made it to the next to the last cut, but nonetheless, I was so far over my head, it wasn't even funny. But at any rate, um, James got declared ineligible. He figured he could get away with not going to class his senior year, the end of his senior year, um, fall semester because as you know basketball starts in the fall but it ends in the spring and he figured by the time they caught up with them basketball would be over and he didn't care well he got caught and got declared ineligible he asked if there was anything i could do to help him get into pro basketball and i just figured i'd always been good at writing and speaking i'll give it a shot wrote letters to every team in basketball but again the sons and and we're talking this was 1974 Okay. So the Suns were just down the road. So they were the first team that I actually picked up the phone. I, I can't remember where, obviously the computers didn't even exist back then. I can't remember exactly where it was. I got the number. I think it might've been from the sporting news or the executive offices of the Suns. Mm -hmm. I, you know, picked up the phone and called and asked for Jerry Colangelo. And they said he was busy uh, what's this about? I explained it to him to make a long story short about a week later, James and I went to uh, where they were playing, which is Veterans Coliseum, where they have the Arizona State Fair. And, and I met Jerry Colangelo. So here I am 
1973. I hadn't turned uh, uh, 22 yet. Mm-hmm. And I'm shaking hands with Jerry Colangelo, which was really pretty cool. Yeah. And he said that he would do what he could to see if he could find a spot for James. Because, you know, ASU guy, at the very least, it would, you know, get a little bit of publicity in the Arizona Republic. And in the meantime, before they could even get back to me, I got interest from the San Diego Conquistadors. And James and I drove over to San Diego and he had a tryout there, but um, got an even better offer for him from the Virginia Squires. And in the meantime, he had introduced me to another ASU alum uh, by the name of Mike Hopwood, who was, I don't know if Mike was from Inglewood or Compton, but he was from that same general area. And I got uh, him a contract with the Virginia Squires. And um, interesting story in regard to what we were talking about earlier in regard to uh, subtle versus overt racism. Mm -hmm. The three of us hop in a car in Phoenix. We're driving to Norfolk, Virginia. We drove straight through because we had three people driving. Um, We're in Arkansas and we're starving. So we stop at this diner in who knows where Arkansas. So we walk in, here I am, 5'11", you know, Jewish guy, with James Brown, who was from Greenville, Mississippi. So that's where he grew up, and, and you know, that was a, his world, more or less. And James was 6'3", very close-cropped hair, very, you know, kind of on the quiet side. Mike Hopwood, coming from L.A., 6'7", giant fro. And, you know, the attitude to go along with it. And we go in there and I'm just, I got my head on a swivel. I tell you, I have never eaten so fast because the people in that diner looked at us as if we had just walked off a spaceship. It was. Did they serve you at least? Oh yeah. They, they, they served us. They Mm -hmm. served us, but um, reluctantly. And I'm telling you, I just about ate a burger in one bite. And it's like, let's get back in the car, guys. Let's get back in the car. So that was an interesting experience. But um, then, you know, like I say, we went on to Virginia. Unfortunately, they didn't make it, but that was the the beginning of my agent career. So it was kind of like what you were saying earlier in regard to the stars aligning. It was one guy introducing me to another guy, introducing me to another guy, and my having gone out for the baseball team at ASU, which had the most talent on the planet as far as college baseball was concerned and getting to know those guys and got to represent some of them. Mm -hmm. So at any rate, so now you're with the sons, Mm -hmm. you're involved in um, negotiating contracts, you're involved in other business areas and you're loving it. You you really enjoyed it. Was it everything you hoped it would be? Absolutely loved every minute of it. I, you know, literally thought I'd died and gone to heaven. <laughs> you know, um, it was my dream job in every sense. Um, I loved working uh, for Jerry. Uh, He's a wonderful leader. Um, it was just, it was a wonderful, wonderful time. And I also loved working with the other teams, you know, getting to work with the yeah. Mercury. I got to work with them in, ter- in terms of some of their um, liaison with the fans, which was fun. And, you know, in addition to my legal work and with the Diamondbacks doing legal work for them as well. Um, so it was really more than I could have ever asked for. Uh, and I enjoyed that um, for five years, ultimately became vice president there and associate general counsel. And uh, then Jerry sold the teams. 
to, you know, the sons to Robert Sarver and Ken Kendrick took over the Diamondbacks uh, as managing general partner. Um, Jerry having sold his interest in that team as well. And so, you know, I sort of saw the writing on the wall um, and, you know, I didn't expect that my boss, Tom, would be leaving anytime soon. And the Diamondbacks had never had dedicated in-house counsel. They never had their own legal department. So since they were about 50% of my practice and I enjoyed working with them, I asked for the opportunity to go start their legal department down there and was given that opportunity in 2005 and built it over the next 17 and a half years. And that was after the, the the championship team they had with Randy Johnson and Schilling and those guys. Yes, I was after the 2001 World Series. I was working for, for them then, but you right. know, providing shared services. So I do have my my World Series ring. Yeah, I will say nice. that I, I was at uh, some of those games, and especially Game 7, I'll, I'll never forget. And, um, you know, what a series, especially with everything that had happened in New York and uh, it was just, it was, it was tough. It was, it was wonderful um, at the same time for uh, the Diamondbacks franchise, but, you know, I felt bad for, for New York in a way because they could have used that to lift them up, but still they were, they were in the the big show in the game and it gave them something mm-hmm. to, to really focus on besides tragedy for a while. And yeah. That was good. How involved were you in the negotiations in regard to the the stadium that was built downtown? I wasn't because I wasn't with the franchises then. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I joined. Uh, the baseball stadium was built in 1997. It opened in 97, I believe. Okay. Or 98. Can't remember one of the two. I can't remember right now. And I didn't start with them to 2000. What I was. Okay, involved, I thought it was after that. Oh, no, no. I was very involved in the negotiations um, for the building of our spring training facility out at Salt River mm-hmm. Fields on uh, mm-hmm. the Salt R- River Pima Maricopa Indian community. And that was a fun negotiation because it's that's a of, nice facility, too. It's a beautiful facility. Um, and it was an interesting negotiation because, uh, you know, you're dealing with a, a, a tribal nation, which is, you know, almost like dealing with a, you know, on an international basis where I was also sovereign country. Yeah. Sovereign country. And so um, it was, it was, you know, fun. It was challenging as any negotiation of that nature would be, Um, you know, I worked closely with outside counsel to lead us through that. And um, from the legal perspective, and we got it done. I also um, did the same with respect to, or was working on it when I left, um, the building of a new academy in the Dominican Republic, but I had been, um, you know, negotiating leases down there for a while, but also negotiated the working with our outside council down there, the purchase of, um, you know, a new property and land in order to build a new academy down there as well. So, yeah, I, I had some fun deals. Oh, it's a different world down there too. I mean, I I've been involved in in some financing. Um, on the player side mm-hmm. with people in the Dominican. And um, let me figure out how I can say this in a nice way. Um, they tend to figure things out as they go along. How about that? Um, as opposed to here where uh, if a player's looking, for example, for a loan or a mortgage, it's like, okay, you got to fill out this form and make this application. And it's a a definite step there, as I say, they they tend to make things up as they go along. Yeah, it was it was um, 
uh, quite a journey and, and it was, it was fun learning it. And before I went down, one of my colleagues who had been going down there for years, uh, the vice president of finance, um, Craig Bradley, you know, told me, he said, things are done differently there. And, you know, it was a great lesson to learn because, you know, it's, it's about respecting the culture that you're going into and learning to work Definitely. the way that they learn, they work. Yep. And, um, it was, it was wonderful. It was fun. And, you know, the DR will always be close to my heart, you know, from those experiences and the, the people who are down there. And, um, you know, it really ties back to, to what the work I'm doing now in terms of, you know, understanding different cultures and. Well, let's talk about that. Uh-huh. So you said you, you, you were with the, the original, the originally you were with the ownership group that owned the Suns, the Mercury, and the Diamondbacks. And then that split up, and you were exclusively with the Diamondbacks. So your entire tenure with the Diamondbacks was 17 years. 17. And then you decide to leave there, which I have to assume was a fairly secure position. You yeah. could have been there arguably for the rest of your life. Was that motivated because you had this other box you wanted to to check off on your bucket list was it po- at least in part because you felt you were in a uh in a box that that you didn't have the chance for advancement perhaps that you might have in another area because um you know you might not get the opportunity to transition from let's say corporate counsel to general manager or something like that what was it that that caused you to make the move to to truth dei yeah, it was a, it was a couple things, um, David. And first, let me say that I thoroughly um, enjoyed my time at the Diamondbacks. I worked with some amazing people, and um, what happened for me was this: in 2000, after George Floyd was murdered, like many other organizations, the Diamondbacks, and I was very, very happy about this and so proud of the organization, decided to be very intentional about DEI and uh, form a you know, really get into to making it a part of the organizational culture and um, being, you know, the most diverse <laughs> person on the, the executive, on the leadership team and, and the only diverse piece person on the executive leadership team, I asked for the opportunity to lead those efforts. And so I started doing that in addition to my um, duties as EVP and chief legal officer, including, you know, while I'm working and we're going through COVID, you know, putting myself through uh, eCornell certification program to be sure that I had the credentials to go with my many years of lived experiences. And so um, I was doing both both jobs and I'm not someone who does anything half halfway. Right. And so um, it was a lot. It was a lot, honestly, and it started to impact my health. You know, I got up, got out of bed one day and um, just went face down on the tile floor, you know, just huge concussion. Um, and, you know, seriously, just, yeah, it was just stress, you know, and honestly, I had no intention of leaving the Diamondbacks really for, you know, another few years. I, I planned on, um, you know, retiring from working altogether there, probably to the extent that I'm capable of retiring. Um, but I, I decided that was just an eye opener for me and yeah, um, I'd been really, really good about, um, was succession planning and, you know, Caleb, I'm sorry Jay, for laughing. I'm sorry for laughing, but all it took was a hit in the head 
Well, I felt like for, for the year before I almost died during the surgery. I almost bled out on the table. They, they lacerated the vein. So there was that. And it has you thinking about, well, what is my purpose in life? And then you get out of bed a few months later and, and land, you know, and crack your head and, and, and get a severe concussion. And you have to start thinking about, you know, what am I doing with my life, you know, and, and what should I be doing? Am I doing what I should be doing? And um, I had to evaluate things. And, and as I was saying, you know, I had done a great job of succession planning. Caleb J had been with me as um, uh, associate general counsel and then general counsel for 15 years. And he was ready to step in. And I thought, you know, I don't know how much longer I have on this planet, but however much time it is, you know, I want to be sure I, I take the time and space now to make a difference in a significant way. And yeah. Um, I'm loving both of my jobs, um, but Caleb's ready to do this one. And um, I think I'm needed here for now. Um, and so I decided to to leave and focus on this. And, you know, it was tough because it was a very secure job, you know, yeah. I'm very comfortable um, financially and, and just in terms of where I was in my career. So it was it was a huge risk to take. And, you know, a lot of people questioned what was going on and why I left and, you know, from, and maybe the concussion had loosened. Yeah, that too. Yeah, sort of. <laughs> sort of is, is is she brave or crazy? Right? Maybe a little of both. Mm. But yeah, just you know, much like I knew when I was supposed to be in professional sports and the stars aligned, I felt like this is what I was supposed to be doing. Um, wow. And I still feel as though I have the ability to to work in professional sports doing this work. I did it with the Diamondbacks, and I'm talking to other sport related clients because there is a need for it. And, you know, I know the sports business. I know it well. I, I know the oh, yeah. issues. I know how it works. I know what the barriers are, what the opportunities are. And um, you know, my hope is to be able to add value to the sports world doing this as I am with with um many other industries and businesses. So well tell me this. And if it's something you don't want to get into, tell mm -hmm. me that as well. But I have to ask the question. Um, DEI is certainly not vanilla. It's not mainstream. Okay. And unfortunately, the political climate in this country is such that, particularly in certain areas like where governors are fascists, like where I live, and in Texas, it would seem that it might be a tough sell. Mm -hmm. Is this in line with perhaps what you've experienced um, so far in, in areas like Florida, like Texas, like some of the other, no other way to put it, red states mm -hmm. where diversity is not at the top of their list in terms of, of policies that they are trying to implement? And I'm trying to be gentle here because I don't want to, um, you know, I, I don't want to create any controversy, but I, I can't be talking to somebody who works in diversity, equity, and inclusion and not ask this question and feel like I have any integrity in, in what I'm doing here, because this is such a huge, huge thing. Mm -hmm. I think it's a fantastic question, David, and, you know, it's it's something we have to talk about. And, um, you know, I can start by saying I would like to, but I don't currently have any clients in Florida or, um, or, or Texas in particular, but I would like to. 
because I think there's a need for it in those places more than anywhere else, and I don't shy away from what is difficult, um, and or I wouldn't be doing this work because this is hard work. Right. Yeah. Uh, but are people nervous about it? Yes. But what I'm finding is that the people who really authentically understand why it's needed and who understand the benefit of it for their businesses are still wanting to do the work. Um, you know, are they somewhat nervous about how to, um, you know, what may happen because, you know, these people are sending letters out to law firms, et cetera, threatening to sue them for engaging in diverse hiring and all of that. Yeah. But it's, it's bigger than that. It's more than that. And, you know, the reason that this is happening is because um, people are afraid and because it's working and people are starting to see the need for change. And we have um, a very real fear, real fear of the truth uh, sometimes in this country because it makes us feel bad or makes us feel guilty. Yep. Yep. And we, we, we need to start getting past that discomfort because it's not like anyone is uh, trying to make you, it's not about guilt. It's not about shame. It's about, look, this is where we are. How do we move forward together and do better together? Because this isn't fair. This isn't equitable. And people haven't done anything wrong to deserve being treated this way. So let's be fair to everybody. Right. And if you're the best person for the job, you're going to get the job. You know, it's not, people aren't trying to hire um, yeah, I get this a lot. We should just hire people uh, based on their skills, not on their, their race or their gender. Well, um, yeah, that's what, you know, nobody's suggesting you hire just based on race or based on gender. You hire the best person, but be sure that you're being inclusive of everyone in the process of deciding who that best person is, is what the goal is. Well, and and be smart. I mean, and be smart enough to recognize a few very important facts. Number one, black people aren't going anywhere. Mm -hmm. Number two, if you're running an organization, I don't care if you are a, a dairy or a basketball team, mm -hmm. your goal should be to hire the best person, period. The most qualified person, the person that you feel that fits in the best. Yeah. Now, uh, it's also important to have your organization mirror the community that you work in and the community that you work with so that if you are a dairy and you are selling to stores in parts of the state where it's a predominantly black community, how is it not to your advantage to have black employees to at least give you some insight as to ways that you might be able to position your business to appeal more to people in that particular community. That's absolutely right, David. And that, that's something that, that people are missing. And one of the things that I talk to my clients about is the business. People know the business case and people have understood whether they agree with it or not that this is the right thing to do. What I focus on is a business imperative, and what that is for me is the changing world. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, by 2044, the U.S. population is going to be majority minority. Yes. 
by, you know, women are already more than 51% of the population. Um, all the different diverse populations are growing, but not only that, with that values are changing. We have two generations coming up that highly value diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yes. Uh, gen, gen, uh, millennials and, and Gen Z. And yes. they're not going to work for or work with as people leading other companies, other companies that don't share those values. In addition, consumer buying power is changing. And so if you're not involving people from um, diverse backgrounds in your business, you're leaving significant consumer buying power on the table for the Hispanic market. I mean, that's more than doubled in the last 10 years. And that's the second largest consumer market, African-American $1.6 trillion per year, Asian-American $1.3 trillion a year, LGBTQ plus $1.6 trillion a year, U S immigrant led households, $1.3 trillion a year and women, you know, their consuming power, buying power, our consumer buying power varies from 15 trillion, five trillion to $15 trillion a year. And women control 60% of the personal wealth. So businesses aren't thinking about these things. They're going to get left behind and they're going to leave a lot of money on the table in the process. And and hurt their, their stakeholders in the yes, process. Absolutely. Without any doubt. And, and sports teams, how, for example, how can the Orlando Magic, the Miami Heat, two franchises that are made up predominantly of black players, how can they not take note of this and instead of resisting it, using it to their advantage? Exactly. There was a tremendous uproar, which you no doubt took note of recently when it came to people's attention that the DeVos family that owns the Orlando Magic had donated a bunch of money to the Ron DeSantis campaign. And it was the team that had donated the money, not the family, but the Mm -hmm. family is the owners of the team. And um, there were people from the team and people from the NBPA that said, look, this guy is working against the interests of the people that are putting on your uniform. How can you do this? Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 just difficult to fathom sometimes. And, and David, I hate to jump, but I have to lead a meeting right now. Uh, oh man! Well, for the National LGBTQ Plus Bar Association. Can you can you give me one minute? Yeah. Okay, one minute because I can't close this without talking about how you and I first met. Yeah. You and I first met because I had an issue with a former player who was trying to hurt me. And I'm going to be as general about this as possible so that I don't uh, get involved in another legal issue. (laughs) And I contacted a dozen teams seeking information that refuted the claim that was being placed against me. There were two teams out of the dozen that didn't lie to me and say they had no information that could be helpful. Two teams. The Detroit Tigers, because John Westhoff, who you may know, was the counsel there, used to live a block away from me. Mm -hmm. And the other team was the Arizona Diamondbacks. And you were involved with the Arizona Diamondbacks. Mm -hmm. And you, who didn't know me from Adam, got on the phone and said, in so many words, this is gaining me nothing, but I'm going to do the right thing. And... I'll never be able to repay you for that. That was so, it was kind, but even more than that, 
it just speaks volumes about who you are and who raised you because that sort of value comes from your family of origin. So I don't know if your parents are still around, but if they are, tell them I send my regards. Thank you, Dave. They did a very good job. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I'm so glad I was able to help because that's what we have to do for each other, right? It's about caring. Do the right thing. I mean, I'm not trying to quote Spike Lee intentionally, but do the right thing. (laughs) Do the right thing. It's been a pleasure and sincerely thank you for me. Thank you, David. And that's it for another edition of Follow the Money Ball with your host, David Sloan. To make a comment or a suggestion for a future guest, reach out to David at followthemoneyball.substack.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.